Last week, we began a conversation about embracing new postures for a new season. Both individually and as a community, we talked about this sense that God is inviting us to embrace new postures for a new season, these ways of living and being that put us in a position to encounter and enjoy the person of Jesus and be empowered to follow him and to become like him. We talked about the first posture last week where we talked about the posture of seeking, this daily practice of making Jesus your prize and your greatest pursuit. This life of wanting Jesus himself and seeking to know him and hear his voice all 168 hours of the week, following him as the pursuit and knowing him as the pursuit of our life. And the promise that we came away with from last week was when you seek Jesus, you will find him. He's not playing hide and seek with you. He's, he wants you. He wants to be found by you. He says, when you seek me, you will find me. That's the posture that we looked at last week and the promise that we came away with from last week. And today, we're going to start talking about a new posture, the second posture that I think God wants to invite us to embrace in this season. And that's the posture of surrender, a life of open hands and unclenched fists that I believe God wants us to embrace individually and as a community as we begin this new season, this posture of surrender. And so to help us think through this, we're going to be in a book of the Bible called Numbers today. It's not the most well-known book in the Bible, but you can find it in the part of the Bible before Jesus called the Old Testament. It's the fourth book in the Bible. And we're going to be camping out in Numbers chapter 20. And when we turn there, here is what we read as we pick up the story in verse 1. It says this, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place that has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink? Well, Numbers 20 starts off with a problem that needs to be solved. We find God's people are in the desert. They've been rescued out of slavery from Egypt and God has been leading them through the desert to this land that he has promised them. This journey is taking a lot longer than was expected. Israel has struggled to obey God. They've struggled to fall in line with the things that God has shown them he wants for his people. And because of that, they've been on this journey in the wilderness for 40 long years. And we come to the tail end of that time as we enter into the book of Numbers. And now they're standing on the cusp of this land that God has promised to them very soon. The hope that they've lived with for so long is going to become a reality. But like so many times on this journey before, they run into a problem in the wilderness. And the response is to take it out on their leaders, Moses and Aaron. And to be fair, they have a really, really good reason to be worried. I mean, they are in the desert and they have no water. That's a big problem. I mean, no water equals death in the desert. And the thing is, 
God's people, they don't just need a little bit of water. They actually need a lot of water. It's estimated that at this point in the life of Israel, there's around 2 million people and all their animals traveling through the desert. So we're not just talking about a few gallons of water. We're talking about enough water to quench the thirst of a nation of people and all their animals too. So this is a big problem. There's a big need and a big lack in the life of God's people. This is a matter of life and death. But at the same time, it's also the stage for the new thing that God is going to do. Now, if you were to ask me, what has Jesus been teaching you lately? One of my answers to you would be that Jesus has been teaching me that he is making all things new. Over the summer and over the last few years, as I prayed into this idea, I felt God draw my heart to this idea over and over again that Jesus is in the business of making all things new. This reality that God is active in the world that he created to renew all things. Over and over again this summer, I was drawn to something Jesus says in the very last book of the Bible. In Revelation 21.5, it says this, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And so in Revelation, a man named John, he gets this vision. The, The veil is pulled back. The curtain is open and he gets to see things in the heavenly realms that normally we do not see. And he gets this vision of this throne room and on the throne is Jesus. And Jesus from that throne says, I am making everything new. And when Jesus says this, he's really talking about two things. The first is that he is saying that he is going to make all things new at the end. See, a day is coming. The Bible tells us a day is coming when God is going to utterly and completely transform heaven and earth and make them one. He'll fix all that has been fractured, all the injustice and the pain and the death and the evil and the sickness All of it is going to be undone and we will enter into a new world to be with God face to face forever. This is the the cosmic and the future dimension of the vision that John has in the book of Revelation. That one day this vision John has is going to become a reality for the people who follow Jesus. But the thing is, is that John is not just talking about some future event, some cosmic event that's going to happen one day when Jesus comes back. When he says that Jesus said, I am making all things new, he's talking about the present moment we are in too. Jesus is talking about the here and now and how he is continually at work to make things new in the present. And by all things, I mean all things, every part of creation, everything that God has made is being made new and will be made new on that day when Jesus comes back. It's this all-encompassing vision of a future renewal and then a present renewal being worked out by the power and the person of Jesus. It's this all-encompassing vision that John has, that Jesus is at work to renew the world we live in. He's renewing creation as we speak. And he's at work at the same time, making people new and forming a new humanity. See, between now and the time Jesus comes back, this is what Jesus is up to. He is forming a new people, a new humanity. 
And that humanity, that people is made up of people who have been made new by the power of Jesus. People who have put their faith in Jesus and what he's done and have been made into a new creation by the power of the Spirit of God. In a book of the Bible called 2 Corinthians, a man named Paul writes these words. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. What Paul is saying is that if you or I or anyone puts their trust in Jesus and you begin following him, you are a new creation. Jesus has reached into your life and from the inside out, he has made you new and he's looking to make new people. He's looking for people to make new. That's what he's doing in the world today. He's seeking and saving the lost. He's reaching into their lives to transform them from the inside out. He's turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's transforming minds and desires and perspectives and motivations, calling people into the new family called the church. God is at work to form a new humanity for a new world that is coming. One day when Jesus comes back, Jesus is making all things new. He's making creation new. He's making people new. He's forming a new humanity for a new world. That's what he's up to. And it's something only Jesus can do. Only he can make things new. Only he can change hearts and lives and nations and cities. Jesus is the one who makes all things new. Now, our son, Jack, he just is four and he wants to do everything by himself right now. I mean, I think his favorite line is, I can do it. It doesn't matter what it is. He can, he believes that he can do it on his own. And we're trying to teach him that, you know, there are a lot of things you can do, buddy, but not everything is something that you can do. Like, like you want to cook hamburgers on the barbecue by yourself. You can't do that. Or, or drive my car. You can't do, do that. Both of which he says he can do. And what we're trying to help Jack see, our son see, is that there are a lot of things you can do, buddy, but you can't do all things. And when it comes to making things new, that's one of the things you or I can't do. That's Jesus's job. He makes things new. We can't change minds. We can't change hearts or cities by our, in our own strength, but Jesus can. And he's inviting us, though. He does invite us to join him in that work of making things new. Which brings us back to this wilderness moment and what is going on there. See, there's a lot more going on here than just the need for water. Yes, that's a very real problem that God's people are facing. And that's a problem that needs solving. But there's actually a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Because in the wilderness, God is forming his people. This is a people whose lives were shaped by life as slaves in Egypt. And after God has rescued them miraculously out of slavery in Egypt, he's been teaching them what it means to be his people. God is not in a hurry to move his people out of the wilderness because he wants to form them to be his treasured possession and holy nation who will pursue his purpose he has for them in the world. And so God is not in a rush in the, in, in the wilderness. He's at work forming his people. And that, that means that the wilderness can sometimes feel like an unfun place, but it's never a wasted place. It's a place where God forms us, and it's a place that he uses to prepare us for what's coming, which means this, that the new thing often begins with a wilderness experience. 
If you look back through the pages of scripture, we see this in the Exodus. This is a rescue event unlike anything else in history before the coming of Jesus. But before God did the new thing of rescuing his people, his people spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, a wilderness experience. Or what about the leader that God tapped on the shoulder to lead that movement called the Exodus, Moses? He spent 40 years in a desert shepherding the family's sheep before God showed up in a burning bush and said, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. Or David, a famous king in the story of Israel. He was overlooked by everyone, even his own father. And he spent most of his time as a child growing up watching over the family sheep before God chose David and anointed him to be the next king over Israel. He spent time in the wilderness before he spent time as the anointed king. Or what about Sarah and Hannah, two biblical women who struggled to have children and lived with the pain of that for many, many years, but then one day God miraculously put new life within them and changed their story and did a new thing in them throughout the Bible and throughout history. The new thing that God does is often preceded by some form of a wilderness experience. Author Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church, describes this for us and brings weight to the wilderness experience. He says, as we study how God brings renewal throughout history, we begin to see the pattern that crisis plays in renewal. A community may experience a natural disaster and be pushed back into God. An individual may experience a period of wilderness and isolation, crying out to God who then comes to them in their pain. This person gains spiritual depth, being renewed, becoming an influencer for God. Crisis and the transitions they bring are often one of the critical ways that God uses to move us. So before the new thing comes, there's often a wilderness experience. And we've just came out of a big one during the pandemic, but wilderness experiences can be things like losing something or someone that was really close to you or the experience of being alone or in pain. It might be a relationship falling apart or longing to be with someone, but really having no one. Living your life in a dry season where God feels far away can be a wilderness experience or going through a difficult leadership transition as a church, just like the season we went through, all of those can be wilderness experiences and all of them are not easy and they can be painful, but they all have a part to play in our formation as individuals and as a community. God uses wilderness experiences to make things new and to prepare us for their coming. And as cool and as hopeful as that might sound, it still doesn't make us welcome the wilderness experiences though, does it? See, I know it doesn't for me. I mean, I find the wilderness experiences hard and stretching and uncomfortable because what happens in those wilderness experiences is they break into our lives and they disrupt the comfort that we have and they expose our desire for control. And this is a part of the reason why God brings wilderness experiences or allows them to happen in our lives because he knows that if we're gonna embrace the new thing that he wants to do, that then we're gonna have to leave behind our comfort and we're gonna have to let go of our need for control. See, in the Western world and even in the church in the West, we like our comforts and we like to be in control. The way I think about it is, is we like to nest. 
We're, we're the kind of people in the West who, who move into a space, who like to move into a new space and make it our own, to make it feel like home, to set things just right with all we need so that when we enter into it, we feel at home and at ease and a level of comfort. So we go out and buy lamps and macrame hang wall hangings and rugs and couches and blankets, all to make our space comfortable and feel like home. We love to nest. And you know, there's nothing really wrong with that at all. It's actually a very human thing. To nest is to be human. But we often tend to settle into our comforts, don't we? We like to be comfortable and we like to be in control of our world and in our environment. See, we like being the captain of our own ships and having our hands on the steering wheel of our lives, guiding it in the way that we want it to go. There's just something in us as humans that craves control and causes us to want to settle into our comforts. And something that I've noticed is that we can be spiritual nesters, that we can grow comfortable in our spirituality too. See, we can get comfortable where we are and we can set up a nice, comfortable spiritual life for ourselves without any risk and without any surrender. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do, especially in the Western part of the world. But God loves you and he loves me too much to just settle. And so he uses these wilderness experiences to shake us out of our comfort zones and to invite us to let go and to join him in the new things that he wants to do in us and through us and around us. And in Numbers 20, that's, that's what's happening. God's people have been shaken out of their comfort zone. They realize they have no control. They don't have access to water. They don't know where they're going to find it. What are they going to do? The wilderness has disrupted their life experience. And while that is true, it is also true that this moment provides an opportunity for them. Which is the second thing I want to point out from this story is that wilderness experiences are opportunities to seek God. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and they fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So in their impossible situation, wondering where they can go and what they can do. What do Moses and Aaron do? Where do they turn? What is their response? They decide to seek God. And I love this because the moment that they make that choice and the moment that they move toward God, what happens? God moves towards them. The, the glory of God falls. God shows up and he reveals his glory. The full weight of God's majesty and power and holiness appears to Moses and Aaron, but he doesn't just show up. He actually speaks to them as well, saying, Moses, take your staff and tell the rock to bring water out of it, and I'll provide water for the people and their livestock. Now that's important. Hold on to that. Tell the rock and I'll bring water. We'll come back to that. But in their seeking, God speaks. And in doing so, God gives them a way in the wilderness. Now the stage is set for the new thing that God is going to do. And when it comes to the new thing that God is going to do, it requires a new response of faith on our part. 
Like, look, look at Moses here. God has spoken. Moses has sought his face. He's cried out to God. God has spoken. He's given him away. And he's calling out a faith response in Moses. And this faith response that he's calling out in Moses here in this story is different from the one that he's called him out to before. And what I mean by that is that this is a story that has already played out in the pages of the scriptures. It's already played out before for Moses and Israel. And that story happened during the exodus out of Egypt. God's people have been brought through the Red Sea. They are now free. They're celebrating. They've, they've sang. But now the journey has begun into the depths of the desert. And as they take those steps into the desert, deeper and deeper they go. They run out of water. And what do they do? They accuse Moses of leading them out into the desert to die. The same story is playing out in Exodus that will play out later in Numbers. And just like in Numbers, Moses receives that criticism. He sees the moment and he turns to God and seeks his face. And then God speaks to Moses. And this time what he says to him is, take your shepherd's staff and strike the rock and I'll bring water out of it. And Moses listens. He does it. And the water gushes out of the rock after he strikes it and the people drink. So this is a story that's played out before, but there's a difference. God is doing a new thing in Numbers compared to what he did in Exodus. In Exodus, he tells Moses, strike the rock. But in Numbers, he says to Moses, speak to the rock. See, God is doing something new and he's inviting Moses to join him in that. Moses seeks God. God speaks. And now it's up to Moses to listen and to go and do it and go and do what God says. And really, that's where the rubber meets the road because you and I, we can seek God and we can hear his voice, but the question remains, will we listen to him and actually go and do what God says? That's the question. God is asking for a new faith response from Moses and what will Moses do? We find out next in verse nine. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So Moses strikes the rock in anger instead of speaking to it. And God in his grace brings water out of the rock and quenches the thirst of his people. He provides a solution for their problem. And that's where the celebration should be. That's where the focus should be. God has done a miraculous thing for his people, reminding them that nothing is impossible for him. But that last line of the story does not allow us to celebrate too much because there God looks at Moses and God looks at Aaron and says, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So what happens? Moses, after leading his people, God's people for 40 years, he misses out on experiencing the promised land because he didn't listen 
to what God asked him to do. He dishonored God before God's people, and now he won't get to experience the promise. It's a tragic moment in the story of God's people, because here's a man who walked with God faithfully for decade after decade after decade, through ups and downs and everything in between. Here's a man who talked face to face with God. He was with God so close that his face actually shone when he came out of the presence of God. Here's a man who God handpicked to lead a movement, and yet in one moment, in a moment of anger, he does not do what God asks him to do, and because of that, he misses out on the new thing that God was doing, and it cost him. This is a story as old as the Garden of Eden. It's just told a thousand different ways. God tells us his heart. He shows us his way, but we don't listen. And when that happens, there's a cost every time, which leads us to the third thing I want us to see in this is that seeking without surrender comes with a cost. See, we can be gung-ho to pursue Jesus, to be filled with this hunger to know him and to hear his voice and to be in his presence, to seek him with all that we are. But if we don't actually go and do what he asks us to go and do, if we don't surrender to Jesus in his way, we will miss out on the new thing that God wants to do in and through and around us. It comes with the cost. We fail to honor God. We miss out on the new thing that he wants to do. Seeking without surrender will starve you of God's activity in your life. As we've said before, God is a God who is active and alive in the world that he created. He is active in making this world and people who live in it new. And we have this amazing opportunity to join God in that. But how many times have I missed out on that opportunity and what God wants to do because I wasn't really willing to surrender to him? I'm sad to say it's too many times to count. Surrender, seeking without surrender will always come with a cost. And you know, we have to see this and feel the weight of it because God is constantly inviting you and me into new things and we consistently miss them because we either aren't paying attention or we don't listen and do what he asks. And this matters for us as a community because I believe that in this new season, God is inviting us to embrace a posture of surrender as he does new things in us and in our church and in our city. I believe he wants us to want him. I believe he wants us to seek him so we can hear his voice. I believe God is looking for people with open hands and unclenched fists who are willing to join him in what he wants to do in their lives and in the world. I believe God is looking for people who are open and willing, people who are open to the person and the presence and the power of God, people who are willing to hand over the control of their lives to be led by God, people who are willing to go where Jesus is and to do what he wants to do. In other words, I believe God is looking for people and communities who have the posture of seeking and the posture of surrender. And you might say, well, Dave, isn't that going to be hard? Isn't it going to be a challenge to, to, to pursue this kind of life? And I'm going to be honest with you. Yes, it will. It will be hard. To surrender is to let go of control. To surrender is to take your hands off the steering wheel. It's saying no to that thing that you've relied on to keep you safe because God wants to be the one to do that from here on out. To surrender means to stop, to stop doing something you may like for a season so that you can draw closer to Jesus or pursue something that he has shown you. It might mean God 
is going to ask you to rearrange your schedule to stop the nightly Netflix binge for a season, to stop going to that website or to join something that you know is going to be good for you, but you might not want to. See, surrender can look a hundred different ways, but it's never easy. But I can tell you that it's always worth it. Because the greatest things in life require the most sacrifice. Let me just take one example. Like having children requires a great sacrifice for the mother. She is giving up her body being her own for the entire pregnancy. Her body isn't her own anymore. There's a human growing inside her for nine months. There's uncomfort. There's discomfort as she tries to sleep and she gets bigger and bigger. There's the weight of giving birth and the, the sacrifice of pushing a human out of a human body. For parents, you give up sleep and the things that you want to do for your kids. Being a parent calls out more from you than you ever thought you could give. It asks you to give up your wants and needs for the good of your children. But it's always worth it. To hold your new baby for the first time makes it worth it. To see them grow up and become who God created them to be is worth it. To hear them say, I love you and come running into your arms to give you a hug when you come home from work, it's worth it. See, think about the greatest things in life. They always require great sacrifice, but they are always worth it in the end. And I am convinced that when God shows up and he shows us the new thing that he wants to do, it's worth the sacrifice it will take to join him in that. It's worth it. And so my challenge to you and to me as we look at this new season ahead, as we start thinking about this new thing that God wants to do is this, don't live off your last yes to God. Don't settle for riding the wave of past faithfulness and miss out on the chance to be faithful to God today. Don't rely on what God has done before and miss out on what he wants to do today because God is doing a new thing in the world. He's inviting us to join him in his work to make cities and nations and this world look more and more like heaven. He's inviting us to participate in seeing people become new creations. He's inviting us into that and we can join him when we take up these postures of seeking and surrender, both individually and together. That's what's before us. That's the opportunity that God has given us. And so with that before us, I want to close by asking a question that I encourage each of you to wrestle with because I'm wrestling with it too. And the question goes like this. Am I willing to go where Jesus is and join him in the new thing he's doing, even if it means I lose my comfort and my control? Wrestle with that question, honestly. Ask it. Ask the Spirit to lead you and stir up responses to you. And however you answer that, know that, that God loves you and he's for you and he's with you and he is ready for when you are ready. But if the answer is yes, let me be clear, it will require great sacrifice. It will require surrender, giving up our comfort. It will require letting go of control. But in the end, it will be worth it to see Jesus do new things in people's lives, do new things in our city, to see nations and countries and governments and this world made new. It'll be worth it. And that's the opportunity before us in this new season, to seek and to surrender to the new thing that God wants to do in us and through us and around us. Are you in? Because it'll be worth it. Because the greatest things come with surrender and with sacrifice. 
and it's worth it in the end.